Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and today we are going to be discussing data. Data is a key driver for just about every decision. It takes out the subjectivity and opinions, and it puts real facts into place. Matter of fact, I'm positive that just about everyone listening has had the experience of trying to piece together information and lacking those one or two data points they need to really drive home their message. Sounds familiar? Should. When it comes to today's clinical trials, data is a key point, and using an IRT system should help supplement and make your life easier. That's why today, I want to discuss the impacts, considerations, and effects when it comes to transferring data. How can you save time, money, through data integrations, and most importantly, how can you make your trial run more efficiently? I'm joined today by Amanda Ruth and Eric Lutter with several years of experience managing data, overseeing IRT system integrations, and making sure that you get what you need. Amanda, Eric, welcome. So Eric, let's set the stage here. What do we mean when we say a data integration? Well, that's a, that's a very good and, and important question because data integrations today are very critical to the clinical trial. So there are definitely some considerations that the sponsor should have with regards to their integration, their products, and who they're working with to uh, create a, an integration that works for their needs. And so one of the considerations that jumps to my mind is who the partners are that you're working with, who your vendors are that you are designing these integrations with on your clinical trial. So a sponsor may have one or two or even three IRT partners that they regularly work with, and then based on the products that they use to capture their clinical data, that introduces several vendors into that whole sphere uh, of their clinical trial. So it is important when you're choosing products to think about the, the vendors and what kinds of support they provide to the sponsor themselves and the IRT partners that they work with because you're depending a lot on that integration and the success of that integration. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric. When we're looking at working with our vendors, there are challenges at times because it's not just a plug-and-play operation. Um, we do have to make sure that we're looking for all the areas that need to be addressed and that they're captured so that our systems will work well both for the, the client and for the, uh, the vendor as well. Ultimately, this is all about the patient experience, and if we're not able to successfully set these integrations up to work smoothly with our vendors, we're not going to get the information that the trial will need in order to be able to proceed and move forward with a patient. When you're designing that, do you do some sort of gap analysis, anything like that? So we do have a dedicated team. They are dedicated specifically to the integrations design and support, and we also have a dedicated development and testing team as well. Uh, these teams are really familiar with all the different types of protocols that we would be using. They have a lot of experience integrating with other systems, 
and have a good understanding of what the client may, you know, may need or, or may be looking for. So we do go out there, we will consult with everyone to make sure that we're addressing all concerns or things that you wouldn't necessarily think of initially. And when you start talking about that, that's how it's designed. What about the data? What types of data should be considered when you do an integration? When you're, you're dealing with integrations, because there are specific products that are heavily used in the market, one of them being EDC, for example, there, there's a tendency towards certain types of data. So EDC products are generally looking at the patient data. And so the integration between the IRT and the EDC system is going to consist usually of the patient being created in EDC by the integration with the IRT system. Once the, the patient has been trained in the IRT system, that data, very near real-time uh, integration, it's going to push that data over to the EDC product, create that patient and all the forms that are associated with that patient to, to a certain degree based on the design of the EDC. And then as events are registered in the IRT, all that data is flow over EDC. So when I say patient-related data, I'm usually uh, talking about the demographic information, such as their birth date, maybe their birth year, data such as when the event was registered in our system. And it can also, it, it can also include some stratification factors at times and also some kit uh, information. So kit numbers that were assigned to the patient or dispensed to the patient, that information can also be integrated. So a good portion is generally set up to capture the patient data and some demographic information and maybe some key dates. And then another, I would say 50% may go on to actually capture kit-related data as well. So a lot of it has to do with the product that we're integrating data with. Um, if you're talking to a drug supply manager, they're going to be more interested in the drug supply data. They're not looking to get that data from an EDC system. They're looking to get that data from their drug supply management system. And so we see a trend, a growing trend toward those types of systems as well, the, the, the drug supply management system, uh, such as Almax Cosmos or a Clinap system where there's several integrations involved with pushing that, that drug supply data back and forth between our two systems. When you have an IRT system, client needs data out of it. Obviously, you're going to need some sort of specification to say what you're sending, how you're sending it, the frequency, the who, what, when, where, why, how, all that fun stuff. Who should really be involved in the specs on the client side of the house? Generally, the client is going to initiate that discussion. So they're going to let their clinical team know and their lead project manager is going to be aware of that there are certain integrations that have to be set up. Oftentimes, they'll communicate that through dedicated project manager. And what they'll do is they'll set up a time, they'll identify the, the resources, and we can meet with the interested resource over at the client side. With the EDC, you're usually talking about a lead data manager that's going to be interested in what data is being integrated between the two systems. The lead data manager or data manager is usually very much aware of what types of data they need to be integrated because they know what the IRT is capturing and then they're also familiar with what's being captured in the EDC. There will be some time spent early on 
captured in IRT. Because it's a, it's a standard practice that you only want to capture in IRT what is absolutely necessary to be captured. So there's no extraneous data. We're not just capturing data to be a pass-through, but we're capturing that data that's relevant to assigning the, the, the treatment to the patient. That's one aspect, whereas if you're talking about a drug supply management system, you're not necessarily dealing with a, a data manager. You're going to deal with a drug supply manager, and they're very familiar with the, the drug run and what's been created and when it's going to be available and, and things of that nature, because that's what they're, they're focused on and what they're dedicated to. When it comes to the IRT side of the house, should you just have your project manager then interacting with these data managers, supply managers, and everyone else who wants these integrations, or is there a specialized role you should be looking at? Uh, well, Matt, you should really be looking at a specialized role where the team that will be working directly with these data managers are trained and understand the different protocols that need to be used. Um, they understand the security constraints and everything that we need to make sure that we're following, and that they are trained with the different outcomes that could be as a result with trying to integrate with a different system. It's a different skill set entirely and it should be a group that is trained specifically on how to manage the different areas of expertise there. Looking at a little more of the technical side of things. Is yes. that what I'm understanding? Yes. Excellent. When we start looking at that and we're putting the, the specifications together, back to that original idea, you're going to have your IRT side you're going to have your data managers and or supply managers involved. These files, do they need to go through then that standard type of development and testing, or is it because it's a straight pull from your IRT system, they can just kind of be sent off? We would recommend that you definitely would follow the standard SDLC process with these files. You want to make sure that those files are set up correctly that if there's any data that is required that we have validations in check and that they're able to make sure um, the data is not missing or that errors are sent out as a result of that or alerts are sent out in order to make sure that the client is aware that there's challenges providing and, and that accuracy in the, the files that are produced. I'm sorry Eric, go ahead. And I would add that there's, there's really no plug and play involved here. Much of the data that's being requested is there's a certain familiarity with it. There's a certain consistency in the types of data that are being requested. We're, we're in a highly regulated industry, and so all of our systems have to be validated to verify that what we say we're sending is indeed what is sent. And because some, uh, many of the clinical systems are custom designed, and there are nuances that are built in based on the protocol. We do have to verify that the data that we're pulling or drawing out of the database that's being captured in the IRT system it is available, that it's being produced in the format that the client has requested it be produced in, that it's grouped with the data points that were specified or laid out those requirements. And so there's definitely a lot of thought that, that goes into the design of the requirements, and then you're, you're, you're trusting that your vendors, your IRT vendor, your, your product vendor are adhering to what was outlined in the specifications because that's how, that's how it should be delivered. That's what you're expecting because you're, you're setting up your systems based on what's been 
discussed and agreed upon in those requirements. Right, and you want to make sure that the file, if the way it's being designed, if it's human readable, that they are able to understand um, the file that does come over. So there, I would recommend that there's testing that's done in advance. Teams should be able to go in there and, and look at what files are coming out there and pass those back and forth and ensure that they look the way they should, they're formatted correctly. And then that can be built in with the development of the, of the system to ensure that it's going to match up and work as it should. The data that's being put in, you say, hey, this is the subject height. This is what kit they got. What do you mean by human readable? In, in the industry, there, there are times when a file is received by a human that's going to open that, that file and look at the data for, for some information. For example, cell would be an example of, of a file that is likely to be opened by a human, and they're going to want to understand that data that's in that file. So oftentimes there will be a header record there, and that will define that data that's in that column. XML is self-defining file type. It's often not processed by a human, but if a human opens it, they can look at the tag names and decipher that when it says something like DOB or birth date, that the data within that tag is indeed a birth date. So in that sense, it's, it's human readable and, and is helpful. Biostatisticians will oftentimes data such as a SAS data set and they have the tools where they can actually open the file and look at it and, and verify the data that's there even if ultimately they run it through another program that, that interprets that data and congregates that data into a report that they can use for, for other purposes. There is human readable data However, oftentimes it is, it is going to a system that is not necessarily handled or opened by a human in between. When we're sending data that contains things like birth dates or date of birth or initials, things that could be considered protected information, you have the GDPR regulations in Europe, you have Privacy Shield, you have HIPAA. What types of security considerations should you really take on an integration or transfer of data from an IRT? Well, this is one that we can go different routes on this. So security is definitely something that is very big uh, industry-wide, making sure that we are able to protect all of that data as it moves through. The challenges that we see are some clients would prefer to stick with passwords because we're all used to passwords, right? We use passwords on all the different systems for shopping, this, that, everything. So that's just an easy one to default to. We would suggest that you would move forward with using an encryption key that does not require the passwords that folks would have to remember and use when they go in there. We don't have to worry about those passwords expiring and then different teams remembering to go and renew their password or change their password to match those security requirements. You should look for a vendor that's definitely going to manage and maintain that minimum 90-day expiration date and not allow them to be a not like a non-expiring password because that's just not a secure design by default. So what do you mean by encryption key? There's encryption keys um, that we can use like a standard PPK tool where you would go in there, the files would be generated, there would be a public key and private keys. The private key would go out to the client or to the other person uh, that would be receiving the files and then that would sync up with the public key knowing that the two keys that are unique identifiers would allow 
um, the confirmation that this is a private connection that would be going through sending data from one to the other. In order to unencrypt the information, you need to have the, the matching key that was first sent out. Kind of like a decoder ring. Sort of, yes. <laughs> Excellent. And so you have your PP, uh, that's the PPK? Yes. And you have the opportunity for passwords. What about the recipients on that data? How do you go about identifying who the proper recipient of the data is? Well, that would depend on the purpose of the transfer of the information. So for, for instance, if it's a lab that we're working with and they're going to be sending their values in, um, then when they pull the information, they'd be sending it in through an import. We would want to make sure that working with them, if they are able to support that PPK key, then it would be much easier for them to send that data consistently uh, and regularly through the system without worrying about the challenges around different folks in the lab that would have to be responsible for password management and making sure that they're resetting those passwords. You talked about the import. Just to touch on that, same considerations for an import of data for an integration that it is for putting it out of an IRT? No, they're very different. Are they? Yes. Imports are definitely more challenging. The data that's coming in it def definitely needs to be matched up. We need to ensure that data is not missing unless that's acceptable. We need to make sure that the data is in format that is required so that can be integrated into the system. Missing data, we're talking about a lab value, and there should be a contingency then if something happens. Am I correct in that? Correct. So if they send in a file that does not meet the validation standards that were agreed upon between the design managers uh, for the different teams, then we would want to make sure that there's some sort of an alert that's sent out to the vendor that submitted the import and let them know that they need to make some changes and resubmit that value. Absolutely, and then I guess you'd have to have some sort of checks around that import as well to make sure that everything's working, because there's probably a big difference between a 10 that's being read as a numerical value versus 10 being read as a character value. Yes. And Matt, on the import, which you raised uh, about, about how that information is you know, different or the same, uh, you had mentioned earlier about the concern over initials and date of birth. And what we do find is that one of the ways that we can also introduce security is just by avoiding the use or inclusion of too much data. So you'll find in, in clinical trials with regards to the IRT, we don't even capture initials a lot of times as an identifying factor if, it, if it's deemed that it's not going to add any value to the, the system. That, that means that a lot of that data won't be transferred over in the integration. Now, date of birth is still a very relevant piece of data, and it's important. And as we know, due to governing bodies uh, as coming out of Europe, for example, we see a reduction in the amount of data as part of the date of birth that's being captured. Even if the IRT is capturing date of birth on an export, for example, we may only push out the year of birth, even if we've captured the full date of birth. And the same, we, we see the same back to us in the lab, for example. They're not going to provide the entire date of birth if they don't have to. So what they will do is they'll send over year of birth, and what we'll do is we'll use that year portion to check it against the year portion of the date of birth that we have in our system as another factor to determine that this is indeed the same patient that they're sending data over to us in the import file now. It is certainly a concern, but to date we've been very successful in being able to use those limited 
data points to verify that we are dealing with and, and accounting for the same patients in the lab system as well as the IRC systems. It, it's definitely been, been successful. And I would say for the larger clients, one of the advantages for working with any kind of a vendor, you would want to make sure, too, if you have a program of studies, global services are an option that can be used where you would build one service that would be able to facilitate multiple studies submitting their data as long as they match the proper format. And that's something that can be done uh, if set up well, can work very efficiently with integrating all of the information into the system. The challenges that we've faced and that we would recommend you look for is someone that can make sure the files are set or the, the global process I should say is set up so that if there is a break in the in the information that's pulled in it doesn't fail the entire process entirely um, it would allow the data to still continue to process for the other studies and that's been a challenge that's been out there sometimes that we we've seen with other vendors where they're not necessarily set up in a in with a consideration of a global process to and that's a very good point, Amanda. Even within the study itself, if you have multiple patients within one file, and especially for imports, if one patient record has an issue in it, you do not want to fail that entire file because you're going to impact the number of patients. And, and as you indicated earlier, it is really about the patient and it's about their experience. Our system being ready to assign the next treatment when that patient is on site. And so those are all factors that are very relevant and important to us. And so we want to make sure that when we're processing that file, we're only failing that data for that record if it really is uh, something that we can no longer move forward with on, on, on that particular record. And then also we don't want to affect the other patient records that have come in that file. We want to process those as long as they have all the data necessary that we're expecting. We've talked a lot about making sure you have the right recipients, the content of those files. What about the delivery? What is the best way to deliver those files? What should you be looking at? Email? Popping it on one of the zip drives that I have in a uh, Rubbermaid <laughs> container at home? What's the best method for a delivery there? Eric, do you want to take that one? Sure. So that, that, that's a very good question because, as we noted, there are systems that are depending on this data. Transferring that data even through a reputable company such as FedEx is still not going to cut it. We, we are looking more and more towards real-time integrations. And so the two primary methods are using either a, a form of file transfer protocol, FTP as it's called, although we always have a secure layer on that. So either have a, something like an SSH2 connection or an FTPS connection, those are just slightly different protocols in the file transfer, uh, the way that it secures the data, either either encrypting the file itself or it encrypts the tunnel through which the file flows. So those are very popular from an FTP, and that's where certain vendors, they are a little more able to support that level of integration, and so it's used very heavily in our in industry very familiar, it's very well known, and certainly the industry likes familiarity. Uh, we don't make big changes very quickly. So a lot of vendors, including small vendors, can push data using even freeware that's available to push that data or retrieve files from an FTP site. 
can get by FTP, it's secure. I'm just, it's just generally it all comes down to a file transfer protocol. And so that's used oftentimes, even especially with labs that are pushing data to IRT systems, they'll use a file transfer protocol like that. What that does is it, it allows us to securely drop a file into a folder in a server that's hosted by one of the vendors, either the IRT vendor or the vendor pushing the data, and, and then we'll go out there and pick it up. Uh, that, that's a very familiar way in which that data is transferred, and, and that also goes to what Amanda was alluding to about the use of passwords versus a PPK, because if there's passwords, run the risk of a password expiring, whereas a PPK, a key, never expires, and you never have that interruption of data. Then we also see another popularly used uh, form of, of communication, and that's what's called web services. So that's where you're actually breaking, the, you're not necessarily pushing a file, but you're pushing data through the internet, through that tunnel, where it's, it's communicating with a, a web service that's hosted by one of the vendors. And so that also provides a secure level of integration uh, that's heavily used. You'll see that a lot of times with, with uh, certain EDC systems where to ensure that that data is as near, as close to real time as possible, they'll have a web service that they've created that's always listening uh, for someone trying to contact it. And then the, the IRT vendor, for example, can ping that web service and say, are you listening? I got some data to push over. And we'll say, all right, send it over and then we push that data on through in a secure, in a secure manner. The nice thing about that is it'll let you know immediately if you are successful or not. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think that the other key piece of that is, like we were saying before, sometimes people will default to what they already use, um, the software, different softwares that they already use, but you should inquire when you reach out to set up any kind of an integration to see what kind of services are available that the vendor that you choose does have as one of their suites that they use, and open up that opportunity to see if you can go ahead and use a different type of service that might provide that better security, more reliability, and the vendor would be able to potentially help set you up to manage that so that you understand how the system works and you would be able to take advantage of a newer, more secure version of transport. You both have worked with the largest of the large companies and some of the smaller biotechs that are virtual companies of three guys working out of the garage. For something like the web services that Eric was talking about, is that something that's more restrictive towards the larger companies, or can really any company set up those web services to have receipt of those files? Oh, any company could definitely set those up. Um, I don't think that that's something that's as commonly used, uh, but it's definitely something that, as a vendor, I would certainly recommend that it's that it's investigated and looked at because there are definite advantages to using those types of service versus some of the older ones, um, the older protocols and transfer methods. And regarding security on these, because security is always one of the biggest things, especially now with cyber attacks and everything else, between the FTP and the web services, are the information security guys going to have a preference for one over the other? Is one more secure? Some may argue that, that some systems are more secure, and we've seen that where certain IS departments will advocate for a particular method. For example, with the FTP method that was discussed earlier, there are some that would argue that SSH2 is more secure than 
one, other vendor companies will take a stand and say this is the only uh, security method that we'll support right now that we stand behind and are confident that it, it's secure. But uh, we we found that both provide a sufficient level of security that, that meet the 21 CFR Part 11 compliance. Both are compliant. Both can provide security. It's really about the implementation is what I'm hearing. Yes. When you're looking at this type of data then, you know, we talked about dropping the file, picking the file up. Can that be automated? Or is this still a very manual process when you're putting together these files? Can it be automated to have those files automatically imported or received or downloaded? Oh, it can definitely be automated. It depends on the, the client teams that are doing the work and, and how they're setting it and configuring it all. Typically, you would want to look for a vendor that does automate it in the aspect of it'll be more reliable, more consistent, it'll make sure that things are there. You also want to look for the redundancy in those processes, so when things are coming through, if something is unavailable or if a system is down, do they have an alternative solution that would be able to go out and pick it up um, and move that file through? Because ultimately, without that data getting into the system, if it's an import or the other way around, when we're sending it out to the client or to the third-party vendor, you want to make sure that that data does succeed at getting out and if you don't have any sort of redundancy in there including using the automation to continuously look for those files you could be sitting there without data for a period of time until somebody would go in there and recognize that hey it's you know there's a file sitting there that still isn't processed yet and there are alerts there's monitoring there's all kinds of avenues you can set up to detect those things however if you again are relying on any kind of alerting or monitoring that goes to a physical human being, then it, it has to be the availability for them to monitor and be able to pick that up if it's a manual effort. Putting those out there, making sure that the correct data is in there. What about the testing of those files? How, how do you go about that? What does the sponsor need when you test those files? Well, those can be handled several different ways. Some of the challenges that you might face is if the systems are not built at the same time. So if the vendor you choose is working on the system and they're ready to test and you don't have your side ready up to test, uh, you can't get that final integration test uh, to continue. However, the testing of the actual files can and should occur while you're building the system to, or the file itself just to make sure that it's going to follow the formats that are expected. There's always that nail biter though at the end if you're unable to test because the system is not live on both sides to do that final interchange that it may not be you know there may be something that didn't line up correctly so it would be advisable to be able to set up a system that you can check from end-to-end -end connection and be able to actually truly pass that file and have it integrate into the system the challenge is if that's going into a test environment that's fine if it's going into a production environment you certainly wouldn't want dummy data in the production environment so those are all considerations and so what we we also find is that sponsors will require a user acceptance test. And if, if it's an end-of-study type transfer, there is no user acceptance testing that's provided. There, there, you should have a vendor that you can trust is going to follow their SDSC and validate the data in that file. But on systems such as the EDC integration or with a drug supply management system or some, some critical system that they're relying on, a lot of different study data being pushed into, you're, you're going to find that they do any user acceptance test. And that's where, again, you want to rely on your vendor to have tested every path and to make sure that if it, if it fails or unexpected data was 
they're going to focus on setting up the data so that it does push all the data points that are being integrated to each of those forms. And if there's any forms being triggered or uh, by other data, that those forms are triggered in their system. The DDC, you have your IRT being built, and that's validated and, and UAT by a particular role within the client. You also have the EDC that's being built, and that's UAT by a particular role within the client. And then someone has to uh, sit down and do the UAT that integrates that data. And that's what I think Amanda was speaking to, that you're going to ensure that there's that end-to-end -end testing where now I'm registering an event in the IRT system, and I want to see that data appearing in the ED system all using that, that pre-described, pre-designed setup that we talked about that was documented in the spec and that is in the format in a timely manner in the EDC system. And so that's what the clients are going to do ultimately to, to ensure that their integration has been set up and running the way expected to. And so, Eric, do you see a lot of EDC integrations occurring with IRT? I mean, you're the expert, yeah. sir. Yeah. Yeah. Would you say that's probably the closest thing you could get to a, a standard data integration? I'm assuming that with an EDC like a metadata, it doesn't change too much. Well, it's standard in its use. That part is standard. And, and the types of data, again, it remains centered around patient data, patient event data. But there are definitely variations in how it's implemented. So some sponsors will design their EDC spread that IRT data out across several forms. And then we've also seen the few that actually capture the IRT integrated data on a single form. And so they they design their form using what's called a log line or repeating form actual record of data that contains the relevant data point that particular event, but it's very standard from study to study. They're, they're definitely used as a standard but it's not implemented in a standard way every time. Right, and I would I would also add that another piece to the entire uh, increased use of the EDC is just making sure that the vendor you choose to work with does have an, uh, an appropriate support staff that is dedicated and, and able to manage working with these files and ensuring that they're getting integrated properly and that they know how to handle them if they're not because there's different challenges that you can face when you're expecting, as Eric had said, this is about the patient, it's patient data, could be tied to different visits and different things, a randomization, and you wanna make sure that you are sending those files in the correct order, and if one of the files shouldn't succeed, you wanna be able to make sure that you can manage that appropriately. So having a support team that understands those technical areas is really important to ensuring the integrity of that data. Comes back to that data and integrity again. Yep. <laughs> and building off of what, what Amanda said about the support 
integrity of that data and, and their vendors. What I have noticed is that large pharma and large biotech companies, they do things a certain way, and it's very standard, it's very repeatable, and it works. And you'll find that the sponsors that have been around for a very long time, they do this because there's great value in using proven standard methods that have proven themselves to work over the course of time. And it's oftentimes, surprisingly, the, the smaller sponsors that have a lot riding on one particular drug or, or one particular protocol, they tend to be the ones to take the most risk. And so they're the ones giving the, the new vendors to the marketplace uh, that first opportunity. And it's nice because it does create some competition. It gives people an opportunity, but it does introduce a lot of risk. And, and so one of the things that we found is that uh, those vendors may never have integrated with an IRT before. And so their reliance on and familiarity with documentation and the importance of documentation sometimes doesn't exist. And so they're looking to the IRT to create a document them and there's a lot of questions that they've never thought through or asked or answered before so it is very interesting that the the smaller sponsors that have so much depending on the success of their trial are willing to to introduce risk with new vendors uh, rather than some pointers from the large pharma and large biotech that use those proven vendors that have been around for a long time and are using very standard methods to, to get the job done successfully, and which is ultimately supports the patient, provides a better experience for them. EDC is pretty common. What are the other common types of transfers or integrations that you end up seeing then? Now, flipping over to the drug supply side, we do see integrations where clients want to see the shipments that were sent out from the depot, who the courier is, and some form of proof of delivery. So that goes more towards the drug supply management systems that are uh, becoming more popular. And we're, we're familiar with that, that inventory release process. Sometimes that can be manual, but with a drug supply management system, that part can be automated. And then there's the drug order that goes back to the depot to pick the kits and to ship them to a site, um, those are all, those, those have been around for, for quite some time, and what depots can now do to create a, a more complete loop in the, the process is they'll send out a file of when that drug was shipped, what that shipment date is, the courier, and the tracking number. And after, say, a, a couple of days when the drug arrives at the site, all that, that, that drug in and, and register that it's been received and everything's fine, it checks out. There will also be a proof of delivery date that will eventually flow over to the IRT. And the beauty there is that they can then display and report on the web so that the drug supply manager knows and is confident that all that information has been shared with all parties. And bringing that back to like a global process, we've worked with vendors where um, they've set up a series of integrations or transfers that uh, would bring that data back and forth and 
um, set up in an automated fashion that it could really, from beginning to end, work through the system and alerts data so that it does make it over to the client for their records. And what we're also seeing is that on, on the rise, we see some temperature excursion integrations where, where now they have a monitor on those kits that are temperature sensitive and your vendor should be able to support that type of integration so that an alert be kicked out if something is, is raised that the temperature went on excursion for that kit. So we, we see all that related around well supply management. And then not to be forgotten, you also have with oncology studies more and more lab data integration uh, occurring where, where labs are capturing some important patient-related data that has to be sent to the IRT to, to use that information in randomization or a subsequent uh, drug supply event. Right, and then adding to it, when you're looking at it, the ultimately, the other piece that needs to be considered is that compliance. It has to be easy for the participating vendors to be able to submit the, the information that's required. And if you are introducing a system that's complex, or complicated, I should say, to use, getting that compliance from the various folks that do need to send in the information can be a challenge. For example, with the temperature excursions, things like that, if it's a challenge for them when the information is brought over and they have to log into the system and they have to answer all these questions as opposed to being able to just pop in a USB stick and upload the information or even have that automated in any other fashion, um, the compliance risk becomes an issue with ensuring that all of the data is collected appropriately and, and available when required. I wanted to also ask about during this, this talk is we have trials that run five years, six years, ten years. I think the oldest one that I've seen so far is about 17 years old at this point. Technology changes. It does, yes. So when you talked about picking the correct methodologies and formats, do you find that you have to change those or it's important to change the, the delivery of that? Is there a risk involved there? There's a lot of risks when you work with trials that are going to extend over a significant period of time. Um, as you had said, technology changes, security requirements change, so oftentimes if you want support on those servers, you need to upgrade those operating systems, you need to upgrade with the, the latest security patches, and then the software that is older does need to be able to work in conjunction with those. So that can be a challenge, and uh, as a risk from a business, you want to make sure that you're providing that security around the data, and so if you are not able to amend to those changes and bring those on board, you could be really causing some um, major risk that is not addressed. The other piece to it is there's cost associated with all of that as well. When you're upgrading the different systems, you have to be able to pay for that. But then if you don't have the support, who do you call when there are issues? So there's different things that need to be balanced out there that often uh, companies are definitely taking more of an approach of trying to keep up with this latest security, making sure that we're following the upgrade paths and moving forward. If you work off of older software, you have those challenges out there that uh, are not do not leave you in a good position should there something uh, something happen that is not right. uh, suitable. We've all seen that pharma sometimes moves at a little bit slowed of a pace. And I like to ask this for every episode we do. What's one of the biggest pitfalls that you see with data integrations? Mm. One of the, the biggest pitfalls that I've seen is that within the, the sponsor, they will have a team dedicated and assigned to their horizon, what, what integrations 
coming years. And then eventually, maybe two months before go live, they then turn to their vendor and they announce to them these integrations that they want for all of their systems or even one system and they expect that to be turned around immediately as though it's, it's just a, a quick and easy uh, plug and play. And, and so there's, there's a, a risk there, there's a great challenge there because if they're expecting certain standards to be consistent from study to study, it's important for the sponsor to partner with their vendors and make them known of what's coming up on the horizon so that we can plan and ensure that we have the right, right resources available to dedicate to the project so that you have the best possible outcome that, that you need for, for your success internally as well. And I'd just like to reemphasize a point we had made earlier, having those specialists who do truly understand the technology and the concepts and are dedicated to working with integrations, those resources are also going to take into consideration of how the system's built, and they're going to make sure that as the system is built, it's going to work directly with the integrations that are being created as well. So you can't just build an integration and not understand how the source of the system that you're pulling your data from actually functions. If it doesn't match up with how you're pulling the data, then you're not going to have the information that you need or supply the data correctly. For example, if you're pulling from a database and you have different limits set up on your table versus what the table is that you're pulling from and they don't match up and and you get an import that comes in and you're building that and it pulls in data and it's able to accept 100 characters but when you get to the main system you're trying to integrate to it only accepts 50 it's going to break so there's going to be different things that occur and it's really important to make sure you have that team that does understand how all parts and all aspects of the systems are being built and coordinates effectively across through the entire platform what do you see on average the number of integrations that are occurring on a study typically there's about Typically six. There's typically six? six integrations per study. So six different ways that trans data is being transferred to different groups, different stakeholders. Well, it could be in part of a, a system, as Eric was explaining earlier, where it's the receiving and um, receiving of information coming in, and then a drug order being sent out, confirmation of shipping, things like that. So there's information that feeds back and forth that could all be related. Um, sometimes it is that import coming in and bringing that information into the system as well as it could be that export of just sharing that data out. So it, it, it could be different methodologies. It could be very similar in how information is transferred. It depends. One of the other things I'd like to ask is if you could give our listeners one tidbit to take away, one thing when they do their next IRT study and they do that integration. From my perspective, the biggest key point, and Eric had touched on this greatly as well, making sure you understand not just a vendor is, your third party vendor is doing this and then an IRT vendor is doing this and just expecting them to work together without being involved in understanding how all three of them are gonna to work together as a team. There's not always good compliance. You wanna make sure that as a, the pharma company that you are involved and you understand and that you ask for those tests to occur and ensure that the systems are gonna integrate well together because having three systems work together can be a challenge, and, and that's an area we've seen multiple fall-downs. Eric, how about you? I would say that it, it's important to, to trust the process. There, there's certainly a draw for saving money with certain vendors or trying something new and novel that, that hasn't been tried before, but there is a benefit to learning from 
large pharma and, and biotech companies that have been, been doing these integrations for many years. There's a, there's a value in, in ensuring that you have vendors that are, are qualified and also that are going to partner with you. Hear what, hear what you want to do and hear what, what you're envisioning and imagining, but also taking that time to, to ask them what the risks are because they should be able to articulate those risks and, and help you to know why you're, you're making certain decisions and, and moving forward confidently with those vendors so, so that you're going to have those outcomes that are, are necessary for the safety and, and benefits of your patients and to ensure that your study is, is running without there being a hitch or a glitch or, or any kind of a breakdown. So we, you want to avoid that at all costs. Well, thank you very much, uh, both of you, for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I think one of the biggest takeaways we can really get from here is trust the process and trust the process. <laughs> listen to your uh, listen to the experts or the folks who do this on a regular basis. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having yeah, us here, Matt. That was some great information today, and I want to thank Eric and Amanda for their time. Access to the data coming out of the system is crucial and a regulatory necessity. There are times where a basic web report isn't enough and you need an expert to look at those integrations to make sure they are secure, accurate, and reliable. But most importantly, we need to remember we need to keep our data managers happy because a happy data manager makes for a happy trial. If you're interested in this topic, head on over to Almac Clinical University where we have more information on how to optimize your trial and how to maximize those data integrations. Deming may have put it best, and God we trust, all others must bring data. Until next time, thanks for listening. I'm Matt Lowry, and this is the Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to the Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.